Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So we'll be joined soon by my good friend, Ryan Anderson. Ryan is the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We're going to bring him on to talk about a host of topics. But before then, you know, I had a pretty crazy weekend down here in Florida. I was up I was up in Palm Beach for most of the weekend. So I kind of wanted to tell you guys a little quick story about that. I tweeted it out. You might have seen some, might have seen some photos or heard about it. So very, very good kind of friend of mine back from when I lived in Texas for four years. Got a wonderful, wonderful radio host by the name of Michael Berry. Michael kind of organized this little trip for about 75 or 80 Texans to kind of come to Florida, kind of see what we talk about on this podcast, all this kind of energy in Florida, what's happening here. And as part of that, he organized kind of like a, a dinner and a panel at, at Mar-a-Lago. And he, he was gracious enough to ask me to be on this little panel discussion. The other two panelists were uh, Carol Markowitz, the New York Post columnist who recently also moved to Florida. And our other friend Buck Sexton, co-host of the uh, of the of the Clay and Buck show, we of course had Buck on an early episode of, of this podcast just a couple months ago or so. And you know, so we're doing this panel at, at Mar-a-Lago over the weekend. And you know, Buck apparently saw forty-five himself saw President Donald Trump in in the hallway at Mar-a-Lago, and you know, kind of says, "Mr. President, we'd be honored if you could kind of stop in." And, you know, we're in the middle of this panel discussion, and there he, there he is. Uh, you know, the president himself, Donald J. Trump, walks in. Uh, for You know, first time I've ever met kind of a, 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 a current or former president before. He is exactly in person <laughs> as what you see on TV. It, it, it was really kind of quite funny to see. I had a very hard time not just kind of bursting out laughing because one thing that about Donald J. Trump, the man, no matter whether you love him or hate him, whether you find him, you know, an incredible patriot, you find him repulsive or whatever your thoughts may or may not be, he is genuinely funny. I mean, that, that, that guy, like when he is kind of on his game, I just think back to the 2016 primaries and look, I mean, full disclosure, I mean, you, you know, the listeners remember when I, when we had on Steve Dace here a few weeks ago, Steve and I were kind of talking about how he and I were campaigning our rear ends off for Ted Cruz back in the 2016 primary. I was not kind of a day one. I see Trump go down the gilded escalator in Trump Tower and say, that's my guy. That was not me back in 2016. But even back then, I mean, like you, you look at the, what this guy's saying at press conferences, you just can't help but laugh. And, you know, in person, he's kind of the exact same way. And I, I you know, it, it, it kind of came out a couple of weeks ago. Trump's an avid golfer. He's, you know, he's got more time to golf now than he did a couple of years ago, of course. And he, it, it turns out that a couple of weeks ago, he had a hole in one. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been, I've been golfing on and off since I was nine or 10 years old. I'm a little rusty. It's really neither, neither here nor there. You know, not every golfer gets to go through his or her life with a hole in one. That's a pretty special moment. So Michael Berry kind of asked me about this. He says, you know, Mr. President, you know, I heard you, you, you had a hole in one a couple of weeks ago. Please tell us about it. And he just go, he, he just goes full Trump. 
he's just like, oh, you know, it was a five iron, 181 yards. Oh, that's a hell of a five iron, by the way. It's a stiff five iron. It was a stiff cross breeze. And, you know, it kind of bounces, it trickles in there. Uh, it, it was just incredible stuff. And I, 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 was, I was actually standing next to him and I just had such a hard time not bursting out laughing there. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, uh, personally speaking there, look, I, I, I obviously would uh, gladly, gladly vote for President Trump if he were to run again in 2024. Um, I, I obviously would also enthusiastically support Governor DeSantis if that's the way this thing ultimately uh, happens. I'm a huge fan of our governor. It's obviously part of why I have moved to Florida and why a lot of other conservatives are kind of trickling in here. But it's very difficult, I think, to spend any time with President Trump or, you know, even just like watching his rallies and, and conclude that that he is not running. Um, it certainly seems that way. It's very difficult, I think, to conclude that he is not. I mean, it, just the way that he kind of talks to the audience here, you know, someone there, I, I, I think, kind of like shouted across the room and was like, are you running again in 24? And I, you know, I, if I remember correctly, exactly what he said, he was like, oh, we're, uh, we're going to make everyone here happy. Don't worry about it. I mean, you know, he, he kind of gives away the game half the time there. And, you know, as of now, if he does run, and again, as of now, I think it's, this is my best guess. I don't have any inside information here, guys. But I mean, I, I think it's like a 98% chance. I mean, I think it's extremely high. Again, I mean, he's, you know, he's in his 70s. I mean, he could have a health problem. Who the hell knows? But as of now, he's going to run. And as of now, he's probably going to win, given the state of the Democratic Party, given the polling for this fall. Democrats are going to get wiped up and down the ballot this fall there. And if he actually does win, if Donald Trump does get a second term from 2024 to 2028, man, can you imagine what the reaction from the left is going to be? Can you imagine the kind of like looting and rioting? I mean, I, sh I, 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 it's, it's horrifying. I shouldn't sound even like remotely excited at the prospect of that, obviously, but the thought that, you know, just the very thought of four more years of, of, of president Donald J. Trump really, I think is going to make half this country just completely and utterly lose its mind. But look, on the bright side there, and Trump actually said this to us at Mar-a-Lago on a Friday night, you know, he gets out there, he starts talking about a couple of issues, inflation, but you know, on, on the Russia-Ukraine issue, and he's totally right about this. You know, one thing that he said was, you know, I guarantee you Putin would not have invaded if I were president. And you know what? He's right. I actually wrote that column verbatim in late February. I literally said, I think the title of the column was basically, of course, Vladimir Putin invade under Joe Biden, because of course he does, okay? I mean, there were some things that you just kind of know have now happened under Biden's watch that simply would not have been imaginable under President Trump's watch. And Putin kind of marching in all the way to Kiev is, is definitely one of those things there. But we'll see what happens in 2024. But I kind of just thought that I would share that story with y'all. It was a was a, it, it was a heck of an experience. He ended up kind of inviting us to a quote-unquote disco in Mar-a-Lago at the end of the night, which we did. And then he and Melania were sitting there behind a rope at the, at, at the, at the disco, kind of just watching the folks dance. He was complimenting the dancers. It, 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 it was just a hell of an experience. So very grateful for having that experience. First time I've ever, I've ever met a president. So um, we will be right back. Stay with us. We're about to take a quick commercial break. We're going to be right back, as mentioned earlier, with Ryan Anderson. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back. So as mentioned, we are thrilled this week to be joined by my good friend, Ryan Anderson, who's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the author of many well-known books, some of which you might be able to find on Amazon, some of which you definitely cannot find. But Ryan, thanks so much for joining this week. Happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. You know, on a point of personal privilege, it's almost kind of like a career coming full circle moment for me, actually. Ryan, I don't even know if you know this, but my first ever kind of position, really, job or internship in the broader kind of right of center space was an unpaid part-time internship many, many years ago at EPPC. So it's definitely kind of like a full circle moment here. So just thrilled to have you. But Let's kind of pick up. I didn't know that. That that that's that's great to hear. Yeah, no, this was this was years ago. It was uh, it was 2012 or 2013 or something like that. Back when back when your predecessor, our mutual friend Ed Whelan, was leading it. But you know, you're, you've been there for a little over a year, and you're doing such great work. And one of the many things that I that, that I personally love about what you're doing over at EPPC is you've kind of got this whole new kind of big tech wing of the think tank. You know, led by Claire Morell. There's like a nice weekly newsletter out there. And, you know, this issue, based on kind of what we said there with your books kind of being banned from Amazon and everything, it's a little personal, but it's also like much more substantive, obviously. And, you know, you have a PhD, and I think a lot of people don't know this about you because they associate you so much with kind of the culture war issues, marriage, religious liberty and whatnot. But you have extremely well thought out views on kind of political economy and the nature of what corporations are and are not and how that kind of relates to the to the notion of the common good. So kind of walk us through that as it all pertains to the big tech issue, if you will. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say there is that, you know, Claire's re- really done amazing work for us. Um, you know, we, we had in mind to start a big tech project at EPPC before Amazon canceled my book. But then the timing of it was perfect, you know, right as we were getting ready to announce um, Claire's arrival at EPPC, Amazon, you know, disappears a three-year-old book of mine. Um, and Claire had been, um, you know, a special assistant to um, Attorney General Bill Barr, one, like the Section 230 report that uh, the Attorney General's office had put out in the big tech more broadly. Um, but I think, you know, one, one of the most important um, lines of, you know, conservative punditry and, and scholarship is from the early George Will. And, you know, the George Will of today is not the same George Will of my childhood, but you know, he wrote a book. I think it's 1983, Statecraft as Soulcraft, and there's a line where he says, and this is his voice. He says, "The four most important words are po- in politics are up to a point." And then what he points out, this is the early will, was that all of our liberties have limits. Uh, I don't think that phrase is his. It's a phrase that I've started using a lot, um, and 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 that's what he captures with the up to a point. Are we in favor of? free trade up to a point? Are we in favor of free speech up to a point? And then the hard work is identifying what that point is, right? What are the limits of various liberties? And, you know, obviously this takes place. Religious liberty isn't an unlimited value. There are going to be limits to religious liberty. Same thing is true going to be uh, for economic liberty. And then we, I mean, I think on the big tech side of things, it's not so much um, just censorship of conservative voices, although I think that's part of it. And, you know, what, what Amazon did to my books, ridiculous. Um, and, you know, while, while in my case, you know, they did me a favor, it sold more 
copies for a three-year-old book. It was a helpful spike of sales. The effects I'm more worried about in that situation are how it leads to self-censoring and you know, various voices and various publishing houses that aren't going to want to touch the transgender issue for fear of running afoul of Amazon. And then how that might lead to kind of a radicalizing of voices. You know, people saying, you know, why even try to say it in a charitable, um, uh, responsible way if we're going to get censored anyway? Let's just throw bombs, right? And so it could actually be a self-defeating move right. on Amazon's part. But I think even beyond the censorship thing is actually the human flourishing thing. Um, you know, and Claire wrote a piece just just today. I, I don't know when this will air, so I probably <laughs> uh, for for listeners who knows when uh, Claire wrote that piece. But recently, Claire wrote a piece um, uh, pointing out how you know technology isn't uh, neutral, right? It, and, and it can it can exacerbate certain worldviews. And she was riffing off of uh, Carl Truman's recent books on the expressive individualism of the modern self and showing how media, particularly social media, really fuels uh, this new understanding of you know, the expressive individual. Um, I think we should be thinking about how various technologies, Snapchat, Instagram, um, really are undermining human flourishing. I, I saw a presentation recently. I'm not on um, uh, TikTok. I'm not on Instagram. And they were looking specifically at TikTok and Instagram and uh, targeting uh, for minors, uh, middle school and high school students, and just some of the really dark, disgusting stuff there that's the algorithms are actually optimizing the target for minors. I think we should be concerned about that even more so than the censorship thing. Um, I'm much more concerned about my kids as they come of age um, and, and what uh, technology, uh, how it impacts their lives, their flourishing, their happiness. Yeah, no, totally. You know, I took one of those, you know, they have all these like 60, 70 question, like political quizzes, like figure out what your descriptor or descriptor du jour is, right? And I, I took one a few months ago and and the quiz kind of told me that I was like a radical troglodyte. It basically said to me that I like despise technology. And, you know, I kind of thought back, obviously, um, you know, to, to to the folks back when the railroad was being built, the kind of folks who would try, who would like, uh, well, look, you know, I mean, there's, these are tough questions, right? And like, I think back a little bit as well to this, uh, you know, when Ben Shapiro had Tucker Carlson on his Sunday special a few years ago, and they got into this big debate over truckers, you know, if like trucking technology were to kind of go the way of the dodo bird, if kind of automated truckers were to come in there. And Tucker basically said that he would try to save the trucking industry. And, you know, these are like really, really thorny questions, obviously, there, because technology does not always conduce to the, to the common good or to human flourishing. So what can like we in the conservative space, I think, what kind of policies should we be promoting to kind of channel these technological forces towards kind of a more robust traditional view of human flourishing? Is anything kind of leap to, leap to mind there? Yeah, you know, I, I just recently read a column by Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal where she was saying, you know, why don't we have age verification requirements? Um, and so, you know, if you just want to focus on kind of like the children aspect of big tech, um, you know, you need to be a certain age before you can smoke. You need to be a certain age before you can drink. Why don't we have laws like that when it comes to various um, technologies? Um, and, you know, and it wouldn't, it, 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 there's not a direct parallel because it's not as if like, you know, a certain age before you can own a phone, but you know, maybe there's certain apps that need age verification. Maybe there's certain defaults that you know you can only use this with parental explicit parental uh, uh, approval, so that the parent has to download the app. I mean, I think anything we can do, particularly to give parents greater control over the technological lives of their children, would be a good first step. And and I don't think any of this violates kind of like free market principles 
or necessarily entails big government. Now, you could do it in a way that does violate free market principles and that does uh, create an unwieldy bureaucracy and that you know creates big government. But I don't think it necessarily has to be done that way. And I, and I think it's a mistake to say we either do nothing or we end up with totalitarianism and we end up with big government. Um, there are lots of spots uh, in between. Uh, we saw this you know, with Joe Camel stuff when, yep, when yep. Uh, cigarettes yep. companies were, were targeting their advertisements at children. Uh, and I think we should think more critically. I, there was a Gene Twangy essay recently that just shows you know, the rise of mental health problems for teenagers. And it almost directly corresponds with you know, various social media apps that were created. Um, and so I think the, the way to think about this is, is to say, look at parallel legislative issues and whether it's tobacco or alcohol or the advertising of tobacco with Joe Camel, and then say, right, what might a parallel look like with response to big tech? Um, look at civil rights laws. I mean, one of the legislative responses for um, uh, viewpoint uh, uh, censoring, um, Claire's worked on this with um, law professor Philip Hamburger. You know, one of the things we could look at is uh, uh, Claire Morrell has worked with Philip Hamburger, law professor at, at uh, Columbia, to say we could look at anti-discrimination statutes um, and apply them to ca uh, common carrier statutes and then treat certain uh, big tech companies as akin to common, car common carriers. Uh, Clarence Thomas yep. has discussed some of this in a concurring opinion of his. And again, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's not necessarily creating a big government bureaucracy, but it's taking a near analog and then thinking, all right, how do we apply that set of public policy, legal uh, regulations that's already in our toolkit, and then apply it to a new uh, subject matter? You know, whether it's big tech and kids or big tech and conservative uh, viewpoint censoring. Yeah, no, totally. And the case from about a year ago now, I think last April was, uh, if I recall the name correctly, was Biden versus Knight First Amendment was the case where CT, um, sorry, CT being kind of jargon for Justice Thomas, he had this fabulous concurrence kind of putting out there the idea of common carry regulation, you know, which, which when I kind of give my big tech talks through the Federal Society and other orgs, I kind of always cite that case. So uh, I, I definitely think there's a lot to be said for that. But I want to kind of stick with this theme that you mentioned there, kind of uh, channeling first generation George Will of up to a point. You know, one thing that you've written a lot about, obviously, is religious liberty up to a point. I think back to this Wall Street Journal essay you had a year ago, religious liberty isn't enough. You had a national affairs essay a couple of years ago, similar. Um, why is religious liberty, what's the quick and dirty argument for why religious liberty is not enough? Um, you know, I think a lot of people just hear religious liberty and they think, you know, uh, unalloyed good, right? Unambiguous good. So uh, what what is short about conservatives making the argument? Why is it just not sufficient for the current situation we face? Yeah, great question. I mean, and look, religious liberty is good. It's a real human right. It's not one of these like made up human rights, like a paid vacation and, you know, things like this. I mean, religious liberty, it's a natural right. It's a human right. Um, it, it, it protects the space for each and every one of us to fulfill our duties to God. Right. It's about the truth about God and it's about the duties that creatures owe to their creator. And so it's important uh, that we have space to fulfill those duties. That's more or less how Madison uh, theorizes religious liberty in, in his memorial and remonstrance. But it's not enough. Right. So it's important, but it's not enough because it doesn't protect um, people who aren't religious, but who share the same exact natural law viewpoints and beliefs and truths that you and I share, Josh. Right. I mean, so whether you're an atheist who's pro-life or you're an atheist who's against, you know, transgender um, uh, 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 craziness, right? You should be protected. 
uh, even if you're not religious. Likewise, it doesn't respond to other areas that bad public policies raise issue about, right? A bad law isn't just bad because it violates religious liberty, but it might be bad because it kills unborn babies. Let's take it to a quick commercial break. So you're listening with Ryan Anderson, president of Ethics of Public Policy Center. So stay with us. We'll be right back on the other side. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. So Ryan, your next book coming out in June, if I'm not mistaken, entitled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. So pretty straight to the point there. So the the first thing that I can't help but notice is the timing of the book, which obviously is going to be right around the time that the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health decision comes down from the Supreme Court, which of course is kind of the first time since Planned Parenthood versus Casey 30 years ago that the Supreme Court has the opportunity to potentially just simply overturn Roe versus Wade. So First of all, tell us about the book. And second of all, is uh, am I right to kind of grok at the idea that that timing is not purely coincidental? The, the timing is intentional. Um, regardless of what the court does, we think it's going to be a new chapter for the pro-life movement. Um, and we want this book um, to equip every pro-lifer in the country to be ready uh, to put the hand to the plow and to do what's going to be necessary in this new uh, moment for the pro-life movement. I mean, personally, I do think we win the Dobbs case. Uh, and I think um, in winning Dobbs, we're likely to also overturn Roe and Casey. Um, and just the reality there is that Roe and Casey were um, wrongly decided the day they were decided the court should take the earliest opportunity possible to finally admit they got it wrong. Um, uh, this shouldn't be a hard case. It shouldn't have been a hard case 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. There's nothing in the Constitution uh, that protects a right to lethal violence in the womb. Um, and it's not just that they got a case wrong uh, in Roe and in Casey. They committed an injustice. Right? We, we now have 65 million unborn children who have been legally slaughtered under the Roe and Casey regime. Uh, and it's time to just finally admit we got this wrong. Um, but that only sets up you know, kind of the, the next stage because overturning Roe and Casey doesn't on its own do anything to end abortion. Uh, we're going to need state and federal laws. Some state laws will actually jump into effect as soon as Roe and Casey are overturned. Other ones are going to have to be crafted at the state level and, and at the federal level. I think we need all hands on deck. And what the book does is argue um, the kind of more traditional pro-life argument focuses on how abortion uh, kills an unborn child. And that's chapter one, because that's the central harm of abortion. Um, what we wanted to do was show that abortion harms a lot more in addition to that, that um, uh, abortion harms everything it touches and it solves nothing. Uh, and so then we look at how abortion has harmed women, um, but both physically, psychologically, how it's harmed the relationships between men and women, how it's harmed the family. We look at how abortion has particularly harmed um, people with disabilities, how uh, sex selective abortion, sex discriminatory abortion harms unborn baby girls, how it has harmed people in minority communities who have skyrocketed rates of abortion. We look at how it's harmed medicine. It's really corrupted the practice of medicine, how it's harmed 
politics, uh, particularly how it's just, you know, utterly corrupted the Democratic Party, which used to be a pro-life party and how it's um, turned a bunch of uh, pro-life Democrats into hypocrites over uh, the course of their political careers, how it undermined uh, the rule of law and constitutional self-government, how it uh, corrupted our popular culture and our um, economic culture. And so, you know, really what we wanted to do is, you know, say, look at some major issues. I think it's seven, eight chapters in the book. There's not a single one that it's changed for the better. Everything it's touched, it's made worse. And so the Dobbs case gives us an opportunity to say we got Roe and Casey wrong, but then it also gives us the, not just the opportunity, but I think the obligation uh, to pass laws that will finally prohibit abortion, protect unborn babies, serve the mothers who need our assistance in choosing life. Um, So that's what we're working on there. Um, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but I'm hopeful. No, that's great stuff. And I'm super excited for the book. I, I, we probably should just, you know, caveat that, you know, when, when you say that abortion will, will just be returned to the states, you know, I think we're both assuming, obviously, and I assume this as well, um, you know, then, then none of the justices will actually adopt kind of, you know, the, the John Finnis, Robbie George argument that the Constitution actually affirmatively precludes um, the states from legalizing abortion. I, I think we're kind of all operating under the assumption that if the court actually does overturn Roe, then they'll just return this thing to the states. But, you know, I kind of want to the feds. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Return it to the democratic process. I mean, I, I think that's what would would end. Most likely outcome here is they return it to the democratic process, which includes both the states and there's an important role for the federal government, um, both Congress and uh, the administrative state, the regulatory state, the federal agencies, HHS, et cetera, et cetera. But but I think you're right. I I, I don't think. Um, well, partly because Mississippi didn't ask. Um, the justices to consider that the 14th Amendment, um, you know, uh, explicitly protects unborn babies. I think right now you would probably only get two votes for that proposition. Uh, I think uh, Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito would probably be the two most sympathetic to it. Um, But I think, look, I think we should push that argument as well. At the very least, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment empowers Congress to say that all human beings are 14th Amendment persons and therefore or Congress. I mean, the, the entire point of Section Five is to empower Congress to pass laws um, that would vindicate the rights that the Fourteenth Amendment articulates, and those are rights for the unborn as well. It wasn't just uh, rights for um, freed slaves. Uh, I think it's for any person who's being denied equal protection of law or due process of law, and the unborn are being denied both. Um, and so, I think that, that there's a role. For Congress, that's why I jumped in to say it's not just the states. We also, I mean, I think this is going to be important for the midterm elections. I think it's going to be vitally important for the platforms of people uh, running for 2024, especially during the primary process. This is going to force Republicans for the first time in you know our lives, Josh, to actually meaningfully show that they're pro-life and not just Republicans have had an easy talking point to say, oh, Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. It's time to overturn it. If the court does the right thing and overturn it, then it's really going to be, all right, well, what's your political agenda? What's your governing agenda? What are you going to do if we elect you as our next uh, president uh, to actually protect unborn babies, to actually serve their mothers? Um, and again, that's why I'm saying this is, this, it's actually, it's a hopeful time because uh, I think that we're going to see the wheat and the chaff uh, separate here. We're going to see which, uh, which public servants are actually pro-life and which only pay lip service uh, for the past several decades. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it'll, it'll be a very revealing moment. And I, I, I totally agree with you as well, not to get kind of too deep in the constitutional law weeds here. But if you go back to look and look at the 14th Amendment and kind of its majestic clauses in Section 1, the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, um, really, really the latter of which, the Equal Protection Clause is kind of, you know, if if, if 
unborn persons are persons, and we know that they are. That's kind of the clause that most gets cited there. It, it really was supposed to be Congress more than the courts that was supposed to kind of vindicate these rights there. So, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, Ramesh Panuru has been writing this for years. Congress has a totally legitimate federal role under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to kind of legislate this stuff. But, you know, in our remaining time, let's let's transition a little away from a little away from the abortion dispute in particular. So, you know, I, you know, Ryan, you and I kind of travel along the same circles. Obviously, we both took part in this one symposium that uh, Roger Kimball, the editor of the New Criterion, which is a wonderful monthly journal, he organized this. Yeah, uh, back in January, uh, the, the symposium was on uh, "quote unquote" common good conservatism. A lot of us were kind of asked to respond to an essay from uh, Kim Holmes, a former high-ranking official uh, at, at Heritage, where he used to work, of course. So, you know, the term kind of new right, which is kind of like a late motif of this particular podcast, kind of, uh, I think, ends up being largely synonymous with this idea of common good conservatism. So what is what is common good conservatism from your perspective? What kind of is the new right? And how is it different from, you know, maybe like the the Bush era Republican Party or the 2012 Romney Ryan platform or something like that? Sure. I mean, I, I think one of the first things to say there is that, um, to my mind, the best about the new right isn't, in fact, all that new. Right. Exactly. Um, it's actually like it's recovering things that we lost or forgotten or got um, kind of like streamlined as Reaganism became hagiography. And this is, you know, one of my EBPC colleagues, Henry Olson, you know, got there before the rest of us. You know, he had written a book, I think it was the year before Trump was elected, titled Working Class Republican. And, it, you know, and it was a retrospective looking back on the Reagan years where he said, look, Reagan was not a libertarian. Reagan was not a Cato guy. And, you know, if we've created a, um, a caricature of Reagan, you know, this, this object of history in which he was only about supply side economics and economic freedom, then we're doing a disservice both to the man himself, but then more importantly, to the political movement that you know, he was a central embodiment of. Um, and so, so in my, res my response essay, you know, I just point out, look at the American founders, read what they actually wrote, look what you know, particularly the distinction between federal government and state governments, which enjoyed police powers to regulate public health, safety, and morals, you know, not all of the structural limits, um, you know, of limited and enumerated powers for the federal government applied at the state level, right? None of those structural limits of limited and enumerated powers applied to the states. There's different governing philosophies going on here than what we frequently hear from the libertarian wing of the party. Simultaneously, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And this was an earlier essay that Robbie George and I had co-authored in National Affairs. I remember that, you know, very many well. Of yeah. the, many of the civil liberties that we do protect are important precisely because they best promote and protect aspects of the common good, right? And so we need both, right? The, the, the point of my essay in that symposium was to say, we need both liberty and good, right? Common good and individual liberty. We need to keep these things in the appropriate balance. This is where the early George Will was help, so helpful when he said up to a point, we need to be able to articulate the liberties that we want to protect, but also the limits to those liberties. Um, and that's true for every, I mean, I, I use the example of religious freedom. Um, religious liberty has certain limits. We don't want people in the name of religion um, uh, committing homicide, committing feticide, committing, you know, various forms of abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And so our religious liberties are necessarily going to have to have limits. Same thing's going to be true for economic liberties. Same thing is going to be true for physician liberties, 
you know, I, while I was at Heritage, I wrote extensively against physician-assisted suicide. Um, and if consenting adult A wants to die and consenting adult B, who happens to be a doctor, wants to help kill that patient, it's entirely appropriate for the law to say no, because this will undermine the common good of medicine. It will undermine uh, the common good of the entire healthcare system if we create markets and killing, if we create, um, uh, if we allow physicians to use the tools of healing as techniques of killing. Same thing's going to be true for how we think about various aspects of transgender ideology, right? Uh, there are going to be limits to, um, you know, someone who identifies as a woman actually, quote, being a woman, right? And, and I just don't see how conservatives can get away from this. And I don't think it's foreign to our tradition. So I think it's a mistake um, when people make it seem like um, uh, we're doing something new. Um, look, some people are doing something new, but, but I think that's largely when they're going too far, right? But I think at its best, we're recovering um, some underemphasized lost aspects of um, the historic conservative movement, uh, and we need to have them in the appropriate balance. I mean, I, I think the real question isn't so much is it this or that, it's both in proper proportion. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really well said. And I, similar to you, I kind of also wince at the label new right because it really, uh, not a whole lot of this is actually genuinely new. I mean, some of it kind of captures, I think, kind of like a youthful energy that is kind of rebelling against some of the perceived or actual, you know, perceived or actual failures of, of previous generations of, of conservatives. But some of it really is not new at all. I mean, you know, as my good friend Rachel Bovar puts, I think all the new right really wants to do is kind of just reshuffle, right? Like kind of reorganize some of the ingredients in terms of like what makes conservatism. Like, you, you know, maybe liberty was kind of overemphasized for decades and decades there. But one thing you said there that was really interesting, and maybe this would actually be a good note to, to close on, because you obviously have been so courageously and boldly outspoken on the transgender issue there. And you mentioned it, and you also kind of mentioned like the good of medicine, which is another issue, obviously, but going back to public discourse that you and sometimes with Robbie George would write about prolifically there. One, one thing that I have thought about, this thought's occurred to me a lot over the years, honestly, is why does like the Hippocratic Oath, like to do no harm, to do no wrong, why does that not get invoked more often in the transgender debate? I mean, I mean, why are people not kind of, why are conservatives not citing the Hippocratic Oath as like a very basic argument as to why we should not be kind of chemically castrating minors, right? I mean, doesn't that kind of just make sense? Yeah, I mean, so a, a couple of thoughts there. One is that some of the modern versions of the Hippocratic Oath actually will take out the first do no harm part, or more commonly, um, I think it's the next sentence or maybe two sentences down where the doctor takes a pledge not to prescribe or to um, give or to make any allusions to life ending medications, right? So part of the Hippocratic Oath was that I'm not going to give any deadly drugs. And then that part has very frequently been edited out, the version of the Hippocratic Oath that um, med students might take. And it's not even a requirement that they take the Hippocratic Oath any longer. Wow. Wow. Right? So, so a variety of reasons there. But I also think a lot of um, conservatives were unprepared for the transgender debate um, because they didn't know how to talk about something where you would have to articulate limits to liberty. Right? I mean, what you had just said about, you know, conservative movement had grown too far to only being, I, I, I always dislike it when people refer to themselves as part of the liberty movement. Right. And I'm like, wait, only liberty? That's the only thing? Like, <laughs> I mean, so, so you're not even a fusionist, right? You're, you're not even, you know, talking the fusion language because even there, I think fusionism was miscalibrated because it ended up being fusionism was, 
you know, in the political realm, we're just going to talk about liberty. And then in the cultural realm, you guys can talk about virtue and goods and things like this. And I think the right answer is that we need to talk about, about both liberty and human flourishing in all realms, political realm, legal realm, economic realm, cultural realm. Uh, and that means in something like the transgender situation, we need to be able to talk about what's the truth of human nature. What's the truth of human flourishing? What's the truth of our embodiment as male or female? What's the truth about chemically castrating an individual, sterilizing an individual, um, blocking puberty of a child, removing body parts of a child? I mean, like these things are happening. Um, to my mind, they violate medical ethics. Uh, they should be prohibited. I mean, I think it's an entirely appropriate uh, use of government uh, uh, force to say that a doctor may not uh, damage the body or the mind of a young person. Uh, and so I think it's entirely appropriate um, to say that uh, uh, these so-called gender clinics should not be able to touch the body of a minor. No puberty blocking drugs um, when it's being used off label to indefinitely block puberty. The only case that puberty blocking drugs are actually FDA approved for is precocious puberty, the early onset of puberty. But the way they're being used in gender clinics, that should be prohibited. Cross-sex hormones for minors should be prohibited. Um, and I'm glad that some states are doing this. You know, We've seen a variety of states pass laws to protect children from this misuse of medicine. Uh, just last, last week, Jen Psaki said the federal government's coming after those states. And I think that's a battle that we should lean into and that we should win. I mean, I, I think this is, um, we're on the side of the angels in this battle. We're also, I think, on the side of public opinion. Uh, I think the vast majority of people are uncomfortable um, with doctors mutilating the bodies of children, and we should force the Biden administration to defend that. Uh, and, you know, our champions in the state should pass good laws protecting kids. And I think that's um, that's a debate we can and should win. No, I, I think we we are winning to be honest with you i mean i think back or i you know i looked at tallahassee i looked at my governor here in in the state of florida and look at what happened when the you know in the recent you know parental rights and education bill that the media and the democratic party were able to kind of successfully kind of get out there as this ridiculous ridiculous pejorative misnomer that don't say gay bill but you know florida democrats support that bill that thing is actually wildly popular here and the national polling is actually hugely in our favor as well i think like a, a morning console political poll had it like um, a plus 16 nationally so the lesson really is these quote-unquote culture war issues, if you approach them in a very prudent fashion, really end up do redounding to our interests much more than kind of an absolutist caricatured version of kind of free market absolutism, that's for sure. But Ryan, we're unfortunately going to have to stop it there. We'll have to do it another time because I think you and I could obviously talk for hours and hours. But thanks so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. So, so I kind of want to just wrap up 
on one of the last things that Ryan and I were talking about there, which is, you know, the notion of this so-called kind of new right movement, a lot of this kind of more, you know, nationalist, populist, communitarian, kind of common good oriented energy. I was happy to hear Ryan kind of echo my sentiments. I've been saying this for a while now. It really is to a large extent somewhat of a misnomer. The name doesn't actually exactly fit. Really all we're trying to do, what we are basically trying to argue, whether it's me, Ryan, I think, or you know, a lot of like-minded people here, we're basically saying that the modern quote-unquote conservative movement, as it has as it has existed, really going back to the 1950s, to kind of the early Cold War era, it erred too much. It erred too much on the side of individual liberty. It erred too much on the side of individual autonomy, maximalism, and things of that nature. And again, that's not to say that liberty is not important. Of course, liberty is important. You have to be a historical ignoramus to, you know, if you were a, 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 any kind of patriotic American citizen who has red, white, and blue flowing through his or her blood veins can obviously tell you that individual liberty is important. But the point is, it is not the be-all, end-all of why governments are instituted among men. It is not the be-all, end-all of what the United States of America stands for. It is certainly not the be-all, end-all of what it means to be a conservative. What it means to be conservative entails liberty. It also entails kind of substantive justice to reward right and to punish wrong. It, it entails kind of family and faith and community and borders and national sovereignty and structure, hierarchy, virtue. There's, there's a lot of inputs. There are a lot of kind of inputs in this formula, so to speak. And really all we're kind of saying is that the way that those inputs react with one another, the kind of the algorithm, if you will, and I, you know, I'm, I'm using my language a little kind of in a little tongue-in-cheek fashion here. Obviously, this thing is not a freaking computer algorithm. But the basic point is that the institutions, the journals, the think tanks, all the kind of powers that be, if you will, in the conservative movement space have just erred too much on the side of individual liberty, whether that's in the political economy sphere, whether it's kind of, you know, uh, tax rates or free trade or things of that nature, or obviously if it's, if we're talking there about kind of the way that kind of individual autonomy, things like the, like gender ideology can relate to the political community and human flourishing and things like that. So we're really just trying to kind of rebalance the inputs, I think most fundamentally here. And I was really happy to see kind of Ryan pick up on that, but But on that note, we are out of time. Thanks again for listening. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next week.